Well, as we turn to God's word this morning, we are uh, stepping out of our Exodus series to preach a series of messages that will specifically uh, strive to prepare our hearts for uh, this Advent season, for the Christmas season, for the coming of Christ. Um, I personally think that one of the best ways to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ is to look at the big story of the Bible. Um, The Bible is the greatest book that has ever been written. It was written by a true master's hand, and even though it has so many different authors over so many different millennia, one of the clearest marks that it truly is the Word of God is the fact that it actually does have a narrative that goes from the very beginning in Genesis to the very end in Revelation, and everything in between fits into this narrative, advances this narrative, tells one story. And Christmas, of course, the the birth of Jesus Christ, his coming into the world, and then a few years later in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, truly is the center of this narrative. It is the great turning point, the great climax between all the doom and gloom of the Old Testament where it seemed like none of God's promises were going to come true, nothing was going to work out, to what happens in light of Jesus Christ. Namely, every wall broken down, every door opened, the floodgates of salvation opened wide. And so it it helps our hearts to see Christmas rightly, to be prepared to remember the coming of Jesus when we do see this grand story that God has written, when we do see the, the hopelessness that seemed to exist in the Old Testament, and then we see how Jesus himself shattered the doors open for us now in light of his coming. And so over the next five weeks, we want to look at five of the big themes of Scripture, five of the big storylines that, again, at one time looked like there was not going to be any possibility of it working out for man. But then, in light of Jesus Christ, all the good things coming true. And this morning in particular, we want to look at the theme of being in the presence of God. Genesis begins, we're going to read, in a garden where mankind is living with God. They're in God's presence in this beautiful Joy, joyous place. But then, because of sin, they're kicked out of the garden. And it seems like there's not going to be any way for them to re-enter the presence of God. And this is what eventually comes to a climax in Christmas, right? With Jesus being called Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of God coming back. And Christmas itself points us forward to the book of Revelation, when ultimately, the dwelling place of God, heaven itself, will descend on earth, and heaven and earth will be reunited, and the dwelling place of God will again be with man. So we're going to have four scripture readings that just kind of, you know, touch in the the briefest way on this uh, plot line going through the scripture, and then I will come and preach specifically on how we are to apply this idea of the presence of God being with man through Jesus Christ, how we can apply this to our lives. So uh, Matt will come up first and read for us from Genesis, then Brian will come and read for us from Isaiah, Isaiah reminding us of the problem uh, that exists before the coming of Christ, and then actually promising the coming of Christ. Sharon will then come and read for us Matthew one twenty three regarding the coming of Christ, and then lastly, Paul will come and read for us from Revelation 21, uh, pointing us forward to the glorious end of the story uh, that we're still waiting for. Uh, so Matt, if you want to come now and begin our reading. Genesis 2, 7 through 9, uh, 15 through 17, chapter 3, 8 through 13, and 22 through 24. 
Then Yahweh God formed the man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 2.15 Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You, are sure, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 3.8 And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 3.22 Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1, 2, 3, 9, 10, 12, 13, and 20, and also chapter 60, verses 1, 2, and 3. 59, 1. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is here dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying Yahweh, and turning back from following our God. 
speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. 61. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall come cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Matthew one twenty three, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Revelation 21, 1 through 3, 22, 3 through 5. Then I saw in heaven and, sorry, I saw a heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, where I want to begin this sermon is at the beginning in Genesis 3, and I want to particularly look at the nature of the goodness of the presence of God. What is the good of the presence of God? Why is the presence of God so good for us? So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at several aspects of the Garden of Eden that point to the goodness of the presence of God. Now, I think that the main point that the author is trying to make for us in Genesis chapter 3 is that the presence of God is the greatest thing for human beings. The presence of God is the greatest thing for human beings, and because it's the greatest thing, It's the thing that we should desire more than anything else. It's the thing that our hearts should long for day after day after day. It's the thing that, in terms of just how we structure our lives every day, where we want to spend our time, how we want to invest our money, all of these things should be reflected through this lens of how is it that I can come nearer to God? Because God and his presence is the greatest thing for us. Now again, this truth is shown for us first in Scripture in this reality of the Garden of Eden, where after man and woman were created, that's where they were placed. And so the first thing we see about the Garden of Eden is that it was a place that was crafted especially for mankind, for a fit dwelling place for us, for a comfortable place for us to live. And so, in this way, God shows that when he creates, when he makes a place for us, he knows what is good for us. 
He is the author of our life itself, and so he should know what will be best for us, what will be right for us. And in the Garden of Eden, that's precisely the sort of place that God made, a place that was fit for man. I mean, even just the word garden, right? The fact that it was called the Garden of Eden makes us think of a beautiful place, of a place that's full of abundance, it's pleasant to be in, that is full of life. Indeed, in Genesis 2, verse 9, it says, Out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so this itself is kind of a big picture description of the garden, pleasant to the sight and good for food. It is beautiful to the senses. It is tasty. It satisfies us. It gives us the provision that we need. This is the place of God's presence. And it's also a place of rest and peace. I mean, one of the big differences between mankind being in the garden and then exiting the garden is that after they get out of the garden, they have to work really hard for their food. But inside the garden, everything seems to just kind of spring up naturally. In Genesis 2 verse 6, it tells us a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So everything was just growing wonderfully just by God's own provision. By this mist going up from the ground, mankind didn't have to do anything. God placed mankind in his presence, in a place of rest, in a place of abundance, in a place of beauty. And we know that God was with man in that garden, that the garden was the place of God's dwelling, precisely because after man sinned, what we just read in Genesis 3, God comes to them, right? It says he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for Adam, saying, Adam, where are you? This indicates to us that this was a regular pattern of life in the Garden of Eden, that God lived there with man. Man in the presence of God in this beautiful garden. And so this is the the beginning place of mankind and the beginning place of the scriptures. God living with man. And when God lives with man, what happens is this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden where we have rest, where everything is provided, where it's beautiful, where we have all the food we could want. This is what it's like to be in the presence of God. Think of Genesis 2 and this Garden of Eden as like a word picture for us even today. If we want to know what is it like to be in the presence of God, even if we can't go back to the Garden of Eden physically, what is it like spiritually for our hearts to be in the presence of God? Well, it's like being in the Garden of Eden. It's being in a place of beauty and abundance and life and rest. The presence of God is what we were made for. It is the best place in heaven and on earth. It is a spiritual place where we can go now. But God also wants to make it a physical place like it was at the beginning. And like it will be again in the end. And so regardless of whether we think of the presence of God as a physical place or whether we think of it as a kind of a spiritual place where we go, however you conceive of it, the presence of God is our home. It's where we belong. It's where we become most fully human. It's what gives us the greatest joy. Now, we don't only have to look at Genesis chapter 2 to know that this is what's going on, to know that this is a description 
of man being in the presence of God and all the abundance that comes from being in the presence of God. This theme of the Garden of Eden and the presence of God being there with man has a storyline itself throughout Scripture. So just flip a little bit later in the Pentateuch when God gives instructions to build the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the place where man can meet with God. It's the place where God lives on earth. And man, by a a certain keeping of the law, by a certain order, can come into the tabernacle. And when they come into the tabernacle, they come into the presence of God. Well, what sort of decorations do we find on the tabernacle? We find decorations like that of a garden, the Garden of Eden. It says that there were sown into this tabernacle palm trees and flowers, open flowers, budding flowers, fruit was Pomegranates were also on the inside of this tabernacle of this temple. And so this is pointing us to the reality that the temple is itself carrying forward this idea of a garden of Eden, of a place of flourishing and plenty. This is what it's like to be in the presence of God. You go forward a little further when the tabernacle is done and now Israel is building a temple, a more permanent home for the dwelling place of God in Jerusalem where they can meet with God. And we find the same thing. The temple in Jerusalem is decorated with palm trees and open flowers, Scripture tells us. And so the temple itself is a picture of the Garden of Eden, a picture of being in the presence of God. Even the the land of Israel, when the people are called out of Egypt and they're given the promised land, the land of Israel, we're told that the land of Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey, right? It's this beautiful image of the land where God wants you is a land of plenty, is a land of abundance, a land of rest, precisely because this is where the presence of God is. And so throughout Scripture, whenever anyone comes into the presence of God, they come into a place of abundance and peace and life and rest. I mean, we see this very clearly again in Genesis 2 and 3, when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they are in a place of perfection. And then maybe the the climax to this theme in the Old Testament is King Solomon. King Solomon was the king who built the temple in Jerusalem. And after he builds the temple and God descends on the temple so that the presence of God is there, what do we find? Well, we find that the kingdom of Israel itself becomes this place of abundance and plenty and blessing. It becomes the perfect place for humankind because it is the place where God is. Just listen to this description of the the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. It says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought near his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules so much year by year. And so the kingdom of Solomon was a place where it was flourishing in every way, where everyone wanted to flock to it precisely because the presence of God was there. And so what does this teach us? Again, it teaches us that what we should long for more than anything else, what we should be fighting for in our lives day by day, what we should be seeking after moment by moment is the presence of the Lord. Because it is in the presence of the Lord where there is life, where there is abundance, where there is peace and rest, where there is every good thing. The presence of the Lord is the only place that is free from curse, 
free from sin, free from pain. And that's why at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that all those things are done away with. Every bad thing is done away with because the presence of God comes to earth. And when the presence of God comes, everything bad has to flee. And so, beloved, I encourage you, I exhort you to pursue, to seek after the presence of God. There is nothing better in heaven above or on earth below. In every good form of relationship, every good form of union that we have on earth right now, whether it be with friends or spouse or family or children, all of these things are meant to point us to what is a better union, a greater union. God himself being in his presence, knowing him. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist tells us. And so pursue the presence of the Lord. But Genesis 3 also introduces us to an enormous problem, does it not? I mean, it tells us where we can find rest, where we can find joy in the presence of the Lord in the Garden of Eden. But Genesis 3 ends on the most tragic of notes, does it not? They are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They are removed from the presence of the Lord. And so we read in Genesis 3, verse 22, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So sends him out of a place of rest and into a place of work. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now they are removed from the Garden of Eden. They are put into a place of hard labor. And not only that, but an angel is placed at the exit to the Garden of Eden so that they cannot possibly enter back in. A cherubim. Cherubim, literally from the Hebrew, to translate it to English, would mean a flaming one, a one that is like on fire. So this fiery angel with a fiery sword guarding the way into God's presence. This is God saying, because of your sin, because of your disobedience, you cannot enter back in. You cannot come into my presence. And so at the end Of Genesis chapter 3, we as human beings, we as humanity, find ourselves in this devastating situation. That we have both been introduced to the perfect place and the perfect person, God himself in the Garden of Eden. And yet, here at the very beginning of scripture, we have also been exiled from that garden. And an angel has been placed so that we cannot possibly enter in. This is the beginning of the drama of Scripture. Truly, it seems hopeless, does it not? I mean, all these things that we as human beings cannot change, right? There's no human that's ever lived that could possibly conquer an angel with a flaming sword to somehow get back into the garden. There's no human that ever lived that didn't have Adam and Eve as their parents and so weren't born outside of this garden. And what's more, we also know that there is no human who was ever born 
who were not like Adam and Eve in the shame that they experienced for their sin. Remember how when Adam and Eve sinned, we just read it in Genesis 3, they hid from God. They actually themselves, by choice, went away from the presence of God. They went away from the God who was their good. And why did they do this? They say because they were ashamed. Because they knew they were naked. And so they fled from the presence of God. Now, we can say that this was the right instinct because it is true that sin cannot be in the presence of God and this is why God exiled them from Eden, is it not? Because of their sin? But we can also say this impulse was a tragic loss. That even when they sinned, there was still only one place of joy and life and fulfillment and that was in the presence of God himself. And so why did they flee? Why did they hide? You see, this is the inevitable consequence of sin. The inevitable consequence of sin. It is impossible for us to sin and to not feel shame. You see, we may sin and we may know, I need to flee to the presence of the Lord when I sin. We may have that head knowledge. We may know that that's the right thing to do. But even if we have that head knowledge, even if we know that we should flee to the presence of the Lord, sin has this effect upon our hearts where it causes us to feel shame. It causes us to feel dirty. It causes us to want to hide, to not open up to God, to not open up to others. Because the very nature of sin is isolation. It is loneliness. It is separation from God. It is separation from other people. This is just what sin does. And there's no way to somehow sanitize sin. To make it clean again. You know, to make it small enough that it won't really separate us from God or won't really separate us from other people. There is no sin so small that it does not break our fellowship with God and with one another. Sin is going to defile. Sin is going to make us feel shame and separate us from the presence of God. And so at the end of Genesis 3, humanity has these three huge problems when it comes to entering into the presence of God. One is just our physical location because of our parents, Adam and Eve, were born outside the garden. We can't change our parents. Another problem is that that angel that's guarding the entrance to the garden. We can't possibly defeat that angel and get back in to the presence of God. And then again, we have this third problem, the shame of our sin. And again, cannot be scrubbed away. Cannot be washed, cannot be removed in any way. And so we see in this way... That in a very real sense, when we get to Genesis 3 and even when we get to the end of the Old Testament, in a very real way, humanity is without hope. We have a God who is perfect in splendor and glory, whose presence is the deepest longing of our souls. And yet we have these barriers to being with him that no human being can possibly overcome. And so, we're left with this enormous question, right? What is going to happen? How can we, who are defiled, how can we, whose parents are Adam and Eve, how can we, who cannot defeat 
this cherubim, how are we to come back into the presence of God? And this is where the coming of Jesus Christ is like a bolt of lightning in the darkness, which is exactly how the prophet Isaiah described it, right? As light shining in the darkness. Jesus Christ is the ray of hope that allows us to enter back into the presence of God. Now again, no mere human could possibly have brought us back into the presence of God. All three problems that I just listed were impossible for a human being to overcome. And so we needed a champion. We needed a hero who could overcome these three problems that separated us from the presence of God. And that is precisely why God sent Jesus Christ. Not as just a mere man, not as another human being to try to attempt what every human being in history had attempted, the creation of our own paradise, the accomplishment of our own good but rather sent Jesus as the God-man, as Emmanuel, as God with us. You see, Jesus was uniquely positioned to be our champion, to open the way again to the presence of God, because he was not simply a man. Rather, he was God-made man. He was God incarnate. And so the first thing we see, which Jesus did, you could say, in order to open up the presence of God to us again is simply who he was in his person. In his person, Jesus was the fusion of God and man. So even just seeing Jesus being born in Bethlehem, even just seeing that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, should make our hearts spring with a ray of hope saying, oh my goodness, perhaps it is possible for God and man to be united once again, for us to again come into the presence of God. Because again, this is what Jesus displays in his person, who though fully man, just like you and me, is also fully God. You see, Jesus had to be fully God and fully man because whatever Jesus did not represent in his person, he could not possibly give to us. So when Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us, that is both a statement of who Jesus is, but it is also a statement of what is possible through him. Namely, God can be with us because in Jesus, God was with us. We read in John 1.1, probably the most famous verse in the Bible in terms of who Jesus is. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, meaning he was a man like us, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when Jesus comes, when he is born in Bethlehem, and when he is fully God and fully man, God is uttering a promise to us, saying, this is how near I will be to you. This is how much of my presence I will open to you, just as in Jesus Christ. God and man come together in a person. So very soon, through Christ, through the Son, you will be joined to me again. You will be able to come back into my presence. So how does Jesus, how does the God-man accomplish this? Well, he resolves those three problems that I mentioned. 
He resolves the problem of the angel guarding the way to the garden. He resolves the problem of our parents and he resolves the problem of the shame that keeps us in hiding from God. First of all, the angel. Now that angel that God had positioned outside the Garden of Eden was also positioned every place where God's presence was. And so if you were to come up to the tabernacle or come up to the temple, what would you find? You would find angels painted on the door. When you go into the Holy of Holies, what would you find over the Ark of the Covenant? You would find cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, guarding the way to the presence of the Lord. And so in the temple itself, there was this sign, there was a symbol that the cherubim are still on guard. Humanity is still not allowed to enter into the presence of the Lord. And so what does Jesus do? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus, when he died, when he gave up his last breath and his life was taken from him, the whole earth shook. And when the whole earth shook, something happened inside the temple. The curtain that had the cherubim on it was torn in two. The cherubim had been disarmed. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is higher than the angels. He is higher than the cherubim. He is able to conquer angels where no human being possibly can. And because of that, he is able to welcome us into the presence of God. But Jesus not only deals with the problem of the angel with a flaming sword. Jesus also deals with the problem of our parents, Adam and Eve through which we are born into this life outside the garden and this life of sin and shame. Romans tells us that Jesus is the better Adam. That where Adam, in sin, drew all of humanity down with him into separation from God, Jesus draws us up in union with him into righteousness and purity and holiness. And so whereas we once counted Adam as our father, as the one from whom we get our inheritance, the one from whom we are named, the one where we find our identity and our location, now God is telling us you have a new father. You have a new identity. You have a new family. You have a new location. All of that is bound up in Jesus Christ because he is the new Adam. He is the greater Adam. And so when we trust in him, we move out of this realm where Adam is in separation from God and we move into this realm where Christ is in perfect union with God. Adam is no longer our father. He no longer identifies us as who we are. Instead, Jesus does that now. And so we're able to come into the presence of God. And then lastly, the problem of shame in our sin Jesus also overcomes this. He overcomes this by taking all of the shame of our sin, by taking all of the shame on himself. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider just how shameful Jesus' death on a cross truly was. I mean, it it was so shameful that we in modern America cannot even imagine it. We cannot imagine it. 
I mean, one thing that's always stunning to me is there is that famous film by Mel Gibson, right? The Passion of the Christ. And one of the things that was very controversial about the Passion of the Christ is just how graphically it depicted the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And it did graphically depict the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So that we, modern audiences, were quite shocked, were quite dismayed by just all the gruesome and gory details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But what stuns me is that even that movie where people thought it was so graphic and so visceral still did not match the actual shame and goriness of what Christ suffered. Not only because it was a movie, whereas what Christ experienced was actually reality, but just consider that shame of nakedness that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. You know, the nakedness of Christ was not portrayed in the passion of the Christ. I mean, I'm thankful that it was not, but it was not portrayed there. And yet, in historical fact, Christ was crucified naked upon that cross. He was exposed to open shame, to open ridicule, all the shame that Adam and Eve felt, all the shame that we ourselves feel when we sin. Jesus himself experienced that shame and took it to the cross, took it to the grave so that we never have to feel that shame ever again. So that now, through Jesus Christ, even though we still sin, God forgive us that we still sin. Even though we still sin, when we feel that shame of our sin, we can look upon our Savior who was shamed for us. And we can say, thank you, God, that our shame has been taken away and that I don't have to hide from you now. I don't have to run from you like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But I can actually run to you because I am not a creature in shame. Because Jesus Christ is the greater Adam and because he has taken away all my shame upon that cross. And so because of these things, beloved, it means that the the gates to God's throne room, the door to his temple, the entrance to the Garden of Eden has again been thrown open. Because of Jesus Christ, we now can enter in. And so again, beloved, I press you with the question, if you can enter into God's presence, and if God's presence truly is the most wonderful, the most perfect place that we could possibly be in as human beings, why would you run anywhere else? Why would you spend your money, spend your life for that which cannot satisfy? When through Jesus Christ, The gates of heaven have been opened and you are welcomed in. Romans 8 beautifully reminds us who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? You see, beloved, nothing can separate us from God now. Nothing can. And so why is it that we continually go after those things that do not satisfy? Well, I think our problem is the very same problem that Eve experienced in that garden. 
She saw something that was right in front of her face, right? She saw a piece of fruit that God had forbidden. And when she saw this fruit that was right in front of her eyes, what did she do? She thought about it. She said, oh, this is very pleasing to the eye. This looks very good for food. And so God was far removed from her mind. And what was in the very front of her mind? What was she meditating on? What was she thinking about? She was thinking about how good that piece of fruit looked. How tasty it would be. How much wisdom it would give her. If only she could take that fruit. And so instead of staying in this beautiful garden... (laughs) And this place where God welcomed them in, she decided to give in to her momentary indulgence, her momentary cravings, and sacrifice the greatest gift of all, the presence of the Lord. And beloved, this is what we do day after day after day. We are alive in this world, and so our eyes are scanning the world around us. We use our five senses to perceive this creation that God has made. And so often, we prefer the creation to the creator. We want things right now. Instead of considering, instead of remembering how the throne room of God is the perfect place for us. And how there is no barrier to us now entering in. And yet, even though we have this open door, even though we can come into God's very presence, we choose these paltry pleasures, these paltry enjoyments, instead of pursuing the living God. So, beloved, remember. Remember how Jesus came. How he is the God-man who opened the door to heaven for us. Remember how he himself has knocked down every obstacle for us to come into God's presence. And lastly, remember how he himself was able to resist every temptation, every pleasant, present pleasure, in order so that he could enter into his Father's throne. And as we look to Jesus with eyes of faith, as we truly believe, yes, God, you have opened your presence to me by way of Jesus Christ. And as we remember the power of Jesus, that yes, sin has been overcome. That angel of death outside the garden has been defeated. Then, when we believe and we meditate upon him, there will be no barrier in our hearts to entering into that presence of God. Sin will gradually lose its savor, will lose the goodness that it so often seems to have to us as we remember what is truly excellent, what is truly good. And then we will know the pleasure and the glory of living in the presence of God. And beloved, no matter how much you may come to be in the presence of God today, Scripture does tell us that right now we see through a mirror dimly. We can know God in deep and profound levels today, levels that will give us more joy in our hearts than anything else on this earth. And yet whatever we taste today is really just a foreshadowing of the goodness of what is to come. So look to the future. Look to that perfect presence of God. Look to the present, to what you can experience now. And look to the past, to the glorious work of Jesus Christ, to know that there is nothing stopping you from coming to the living God. And so come this morning, beloved, by faith in Jesus Christ, and may you taste and know the goodness of the presence of the Lord.
Would you pray with me now?